The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Right now and fast, we're back. Since the start of the year, what was all the rage in 2021 is red hot again. Uber, Airbnb, Amazon, NVIDIA, Netflix, the list goes on and on. But should the go-go growthy names be rocketing higher right now? Plus, United Airlines flying. The airline surging on a big earnings beat and a big boost to guidance. CEO Scott Kirby will be here for CNBC exclusive. And Goldman's less than golden quarter. The stock hammered after posting its worst earnings miss in a decade. What's wrong with Wall Street's once mighty titan? And later, Ryan Cohen, Mr. Meme, taking his act to China, investing hundreds of millions in Alibaba. What's behind his bet? Will his Reddit rebels follow? I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq Markets. I got a full house here on Vets tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. We start off with the high-growth, high-risk rebound. Stocks may have been mostly flat today, but a couple areas have seen big moves higher already this year. Take a look at the gains in names like Meta and Amazon, both up double digits in 2023. The semis have been on a tear, too, led by NVIDIA, rising more than 21%. Higher-risk assets also catching a bid once again. Bitcoin surging back over 21,000 with a gain of nearly 30% this year. Even the so-called meme stocks finding new life, AMC and Bed Bath & Beyond, up as much as 62%. So by all accounts, it appears that the market bulls are back. The question we ask, though, is should they be? Dan, I'll go to you first. Yeah, I'd say the jury's still out. I mean, you know, we're two and a half weeks into the new year, and I said this to you guys earlier, you know, at... You know, six months ago, you could have thrown a dart at your fact set screen. I have about 200, 300 tickers up there, and it would have landed on a stock that's down 20, 30 percent plus on the year. Right now, you could almost do the exact opposite of that for being up on the year 10, 20 percent or so. So to me, you know, we've been doing this a long time here. I think that after a long period of underperformance, and especially in some of those areas that you just mentioned, some of those kind of once higher growth but higher valuation names, they've been correcting since mid 2021, right? So when you get to the end of 2022, that's about 18 months, right? That's a long period of time. And I think a lot of investors are looking for ways to play a little bit of catch up. The problem that you have right now is a lot of the names that are moving the most still are very expensive, right? With a lot of uncertainty about future earnings growth. And um, it's just not particularly sustainable here to have those sorts of moves this, uh, this early in the year. So to me, I just wouldn't be chasing a lot of these names. I think a lot of it, though, does depend on your time horizon. Leave the dart throwing to the professionals, yeah. by the way. It's a dangerous Thing. I've seen when you're throwing at a screen and it who are the back. Well, I use the, the, the suction cup with the darts on the screen. Who are the professional yeah. dart guys? Yeah. Okay. I mean, Actually, yeah. there's a great video out now of some cat that needed to get like triple 15s and what. Sorry about that, Mel. Tim does a great <laughs> job dissecting semis. Since you mentioned NVIDIA, let's just talk about that specifically. 
stock is still, despite the move of 70-ish percent we've had since October lows, still down about 50 percent from its all-time high. It's rallied significantly, as you pointed out, from the 145 level recently. Trades at 15 times revenues-ish. Trades about 43 times next year's numbers-ish. In this environment, that is not a cheap stock at all. I think what people are trying to do is sort of game out the environment right now, and they're staying with stocks that are working to the upside until they don't. And I'll tell you, when NVIDIA reports earnings, I think a month from now-ish, it's probably going to disappoint a lot of people. So you have to ask yourself, when do I pull the ripcord? In the case of NVIDIA, quickly, 190 is where we broke down from significantly in August. That's probably where we get back up to. Well, that's what's so curious about these runs. They're running right up into the earnings report, which we have been saying for a very long time. Expect some you know, bumpiness when it comes to earnings season because of the guidance that we could be getting from these companies. Right. Well, just to NVIDIA, I had a little position in NVIDIA and sold some today. I just feel like this has been such a big run up. I mean, to your point, might trade higher, but I feel like it's still it's down a lot and up a lot from the bottom, but it is still nowhere near cheap. So I don't know. You also don't want expectations to get higher and higher as you go into earnings season. So um, I'm not I don't know what to make of it. It's, I think it's still pretty expensive. Well, I, I'd say, you know, while well, NVIDIA, which is up 25 percent in, in 15, you know, whatever, eight sessions, uh, semis are up 15 percent from that deck 28 number. But, you know, last week, Taiwan Semi kind of de-risked 2023 for semis. I mean, they they pretty much let you know that, that things are, you know, they've, they've cleaned up the they've cleaned up the inventory. They've given you some guide and they've kind of said 24 could get very interesting. And that's a stock that rallied, I don't know, 11 or 12 percent last week. And it's kind of added to that it was up another two and a half percent today. So uh, I've talked about semis a lot. I, I'll just say getting back to a conversation that is the Fed um, certainly is not going to be as aggressive in the next three to six months as they were. But people don't understand how tight this labor market is and how much I think this is going to weigh on the Fed moving for longer. So I get the fact that inflation in terms of goods um, is down. I get the fact that those year-over-year comps look pretty good. I think what people are underestimating is the length of how long the Fed needs to stay higher and how shallow, even if it's a shallow recession, the growth could be coming out of that. Yeah, I just mentioned, you know, it's really great that you focus on semis because, again, Tim, you know that they're going to be early cycle, right? When investors start thinking about how does the economy turn you want to hit a sector like that, especially one that has valuation support. I think to your point, what they just guided to, what they're going to spend in CapEx, also supports other parts of that um, sector, right, that have been really beaten up. But then think about it this way, right? Some of these other stocks that we've talked about that have had these crazy moves where valuation's high, balance sheets aren't great. Some of the secular tailwinds that they had during COVID are actually been reversed and they might not come back. Those are the things that you just really want to be careful. Are there some things in fintech land that probably makes sense on a valuation basis, like a PayPal versus, to me, a Square. I wouldn't be going for the Square. I'd be going for the PayPal. Yeah, and I think that, again, I think this is going to be a great opportunity for 2023 to pick stocks, pick stocks that you think are going to be longer-term winners for fundamental reasons that have valuation support, have you know managements that can navigate in difficult environments, have great balance sheets, that sort of thing. Because to Tim's last point, rates are going to stay higher for longer in a period where we've... I, I can, can you guys remember the last time... We've come off a really difficult economic period where rates were high. The last two times, mm-hmm. rates were really low, and that's what's no, different the Fed's, the Fed's been cutting at these yes. moments. Yeah. And, 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 you know, back to square, it's above the 200-day for the first time, going through to the upside um, probably since, I, I think, early 21, but hasn't been through the 200 since, uh, since November of 21. So, I, I, you know, it's a, I totally agree. There's a lag effect. I know we all know this, but it's important. There's a real lag effect in terms of what the Fed has done and what we're feeling in the economy now. And there's no question that they're looking to get the unemployment rate 
somewhere around 5%, which is leap years from where we are now. And the question you have to ask yourself, if that is, in fact, their mandate, if that's leap what they want. Or light years? Light years. Did I say? Well, I, I mean, leap years happens, you know, once every year. I said light years. Light years is light years. No, leap years isn't. Tell me when we're in the next leap year. I mean, it'd be <laughs> I helpful. I think we just had one. Did we? See, now I've lost my train of anyway, thought, which is easy for me to do. the lag effect from the Fed <laughs> is, is, is significant. And, you know, so the question is, we have not seen it in the form of earnings without question. We're clearly not seeing it in the unemployment rate. And at a certain point, regardless of what they do, put them on the back burner. It's going to have serious impact to earnings, earnings growth, specifically margins as well, which should be detrimental to the stock but market. We should theoretically discount that in the markets uh, prior to it happening, no? Is, I mean, is it different this time around that the market's not a forward discounting mechanism? I mean, it should, in theory, be. And so, therefore, we should reach that valuation that's reflective of those earnings estimate cuts prior to them actually happening, no? Yes, but the most troubling thing about what's happening is, is, is this is almost exactly what everyone expected to happen. And the most right. troubling thing right now is that consensus is at the end of the first quarter, we're going to go lower, significantly lower. And the consensus is, because everyone can do math, um, at 17 and a half, the S&P shouldn't be here. So this is the toughest part of this. And how many times in the last five years have we seen the wall of worry been something that has just ripped the face off of people? And, and so far, I'm not sure that the start of the year is a face ripper, because I think you kind of get this January effect. But I think if this continues deep into February, which, you know, then you get some seasonal stuff, which says you could be good until until April. And that would really destroy people. Well, what's so interesting is that what is out of consensus in terms of the view of the markets, which does seem like every single strategist, we've got one now sitting on set, by the way, <laughs> it seems to have that same consensus view is that now the markets are investing anti-consensus, I mean, against consensus in terms of where it's positioned. It's, it's positioned in growth stocks and these areas that were just completely beaten down and just playing for the trade. Here. Hey, listen, the dollar down from 115, the dollar index, Dixie, you know, down to 102. Huge tailwind. The 10-year U.S. Treasury mm-hmm. yield at three and a half versus yeah. four and a quarter two months ago. I mean, these are things that if you are like the biggest bear, and don't call me the biggest bear, like that you know uh, on the street, right. those are things that are going to cause you to rethink your view about stocks at some point in this year, especially if both continue to go lower. And even if that unemployment rate does tick up a little bit, you know what I mean? Maybe it gets to four and a half or something like that in the mid part of this year. It will re like, make you rethink what where you think we bottom out. And, and again, that's what's going on right now. That's why investors chase walls of worry. But we're about to go into a wall of information as it relates to what the biggest companies on this planet are telling us about what they see or the visibility that they have. And that's why I think you sit on your hands and you wait for that a little but bit. But on top of the dollar, as well as Treasury yields now cooperating with equities, we've got a China reopening mm-hmm. and we've got Europe probably not in a recession. At least those are the headlines coming out of, of Davos from the German chancellor today. Um, and the winter is as cold, so it's not as dire in terms of the energy crisis. I mean, these are all things that theoretically should bode extremely well. These are tailwinds that didn't exist probably three, two months ago. Well, yeah, and by the way, that German confidence number this morning, the zoo index, was so mm-hmm. far ahead of anything they've seen in a long time. But it, it tells you why I think also that you can play, you can play from the long side a little bit this year. And, and I think sectors like energy are going to do very well. I think emerging is going to do very well. I think you're going to have health care that's going to be defensive. I think big pharma, um, you know, the, the, the valuation still aren't difficult. That's why I think investors should feel a little differently in 2023 than they did in 22. All right. Our next guest warns stocks are in a danger zone and thinks investors should avoid the recent winners. Julian Emanuel is Senior Managing Director at Evercore ISI. Julian, good to see you here in person. Great to be here. Um, what's, what's going on here in the market? You think this is just foolish? This is, no. 
This oh, is okay. about as complex an environment as you'll ever see, okay? So you go back to December when everyone knew the seasonality was going to be bullish for stocks and the market tanked because we had tax loss selling that was epic. It was on a par with the liquidations we saw in March of 2020, and we all know what a great contrary buy signal that proved to be. That's when we decided to take off our uh, recommendation that you have index hedging uh, in place, and we transitioned to this idea that the likelihood, as it usually is, is that last year's losers end up being this year's winners. It's just that we've seen it on a scale that no one expected these first two weeks. Now, can it continue to run? History says you could get an entire quarter of that. We don't think that's likely. So that's the short-term setup. The medium-term setup is that we are, in all likelihood, because of the tightening that's already in the pipeline, because of the Fed's desire to get unemployment towards 5%, likely going to have at least a mild recession at the end of uh, this year or early next. And that's the headwind for stocks. For us, that's the opportunity in thinking about options now because the VIX is way too low for that reality. And then the long-term picture is ultimately, if we do get the sell-off that we expect, you're going to get the new bull market buying opportunity that, frankly, we've been waiting for for over a year now. So does that mean you want to be positioned buying this sort of value-oriented stuff now and short or waiting on the high flyers that have run a lot and then flipping later when you, if what you expect happens? So, so we wouldn't chase the high flyers here. They've already moved a very long way. You said it yourself. Their names, they could keep running, but risk-reward looks increasingly poor with a VIX at 19 and a Fed on February the 1st that's going to remind us all that interest rates are going to go up again at least once, maybe two more times after that, uh, because the CPI, yes, it's great, it's come down, but it's still over a six handle. And all of those are medium-term headwinds. So for us, staying with the value trade, uh, consumer staples and healthcare, they actually work in an environment that is called stagflation. But when inflation is coming down, that kind of stagflation can actually deliver positive equity market returns. Twice last year, the VIX was flashing green to buy stocks. It happened in June. It happened again in October. The VIX was about 35 or so. I don't know what happened last week, but that precipitous sell-off in the VIX was alarming to me. People look at that as bullish. I think you're pointing out that it's anything but. No, it, it, it's definitely cautionary. Look, th there was an element of, call it gamesmanship, around a three-day weekend very clear that downside protection right now is really not, you know, terribly value, valuable in an environment where professionals continue to be somewhat underinvested. But the closer we get to that Fed meeting, the more we think that protection in, in your portfolio makes sense. All right, Julian, we've got to leave it there. Thanks so much. Good to see you. Thank you. Emmanuel, ever for ISI. Tim, what do you think? I think the Dynamic around the VIX is, is what also concerns me here. It's yeah. a counter trend. It's counter trend indicator. You can't have. We had Friday. We came in here. We were talking about this VIX. That almost got below 18. No way. Uh, but I do think that this dollar dynamic. Julian and his team have talked about this. Um, and and you know, Evercore has talked about even a V-shaped bottom in what's been going on in China. And if you look at the charts, uh, and I think this is kind of their call. I think you're getting that. I think the dollar dynamics are really important because as much as we had an 18-month dollar rally, another conversation I had with Julian even before we got on air was. It's his view that we've had an 11-year rally in the dollar. That is over. Um, and if you really have that, 
it's a major time for international investing. It's a major time for EM because your, your FX and EM is usually 50% of your return profile. In international, it's probably 25 to 30. Um, and I think we have that backdrop here. Yeah. And Karen, you're mm-hmm. actually touting international. Yes. One country in particular in your right. acronym. Mexico, right. if I recall. Yes, correct. Yeah, C-W-W. Yeah. Nice. Ew. Ew. <laughs> Ew. Yeah. It's not the greatest... You know, ticker, ticker but, but, you know, I, I like I, I think that the backdrop sets up well. And I think that, you know, deglobalization is what I talked about as part of the fundamental sort of uh, thesis there that they're going to be the beneficiary of that if they can just sort of get it together, which I think we the reasonable chance of them doing. And I think the PESA will appreciate that's good as well. I think consensus is obviously mild recession slash yeah. soft landing right now. And here's the thing, you know, where rates where they are and where they're expected to be and where QT is expected to mm-hmm. maintain this year. I just don't know how that's a good investment environment for anything other than what, uh, you know, Julian just expressed to us right now, because we still have a lot of stocks, a lot of sectors that trade at really fat multiples with a lot of headwinds to growth or at least getting back anywhere near the sort of growth levels that justified those evaluations when rates were much lower a few years ago. So to me, I, you know, I'm still left scratching my heads here, but I think there's going to be opportunities to buy names that you want to buy them when they're down and out, not when they're up 30, 40 percent in three weeks. All right. Coming up, an earnings alert on United Airlines shares jumping after the latest results. See if Scott Kirby will join us next to dig into the company's quarter. What he says are the biggest challenges facing the airline this year. That interview when Fast Money returns back in two. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on United Airlines, a stock jumping as much as 5% off those highs right now in the after hours after posting top and bottom line beats. It's, uh, as we mentioned, well off the highs. It's up 1.4%. See you, Scott Kirby sitting down exclusively with our very own Phil LeBeau to discuss the results. Phil. Thank you, Melissa. Scott, better than expected on the top yeah. and the bottom line, as Melissa indicated, much better than expected on the bottom line. And yeah. I think it has some people questioning what is it that Wall Street is not appreciating? Yeah. Because you're not alone in saying yeah. it was a great fourth quarter. Yeah. Well, I, look, I think there's really has been 
structural changes in the airline industry as we're coming out of COVID. One, demand actually is turning out to be higher than it was before because of hybrid work and making many more weekends possible to travel for holidays. But the bigger one is the structural change for supply. And there are constraints outside of the industry's control, whether it's hiring pilots, FAA, uh, OEMs, aircraft deliveries, that are just limiting the growth in capacity. And what you see as a result of that is a really strong revenue environment. The outlook for 2023, the first quarter strong, better than expected mm -hmm. in terms of your guidance, but your full year, yeah. basically way better than the street's expecting. 10 to $12, the street yeah. I think is at 654. If there is a recession, I don't want to be part of the yeah. group that's maybe trying to talk everybody into a recession, but if there's a recession, you're still confident that the demand is going to be there, right? We are. I mean, and I think this is, the street is having a hard time catching up with the momentum that's happening, and not just at United, but in aviation in general. And, and it goes back to just the fundamentals of supply and demand are so strong. Like, we're building into our forecast at least a slowing economy and probably a mild recession in our numbers. And we think that gets us to 10 to $12 a share this year, which is a pretty amazing place to be back to, you know, where we were pre-pandemic, even in a weakening economy. But it really just, it speaks to the structural changes that have happened, particularly with supply constraints in the industry. And the street just hasn't caught up to it yet. And let's talk about that a little bit, because I think some people sit there and they want to look at the airline stocks and the airlines and think that they're operating the same as they were before the pandemic. Yeah. But things have changed. Yeah. There's just not the amount of capacity that used to be out there. And that constraint gives you great pricing right now, right? Well, you know, th there, is, there are huge constraints on the industry to grow. Pilots are one of the big ones. You know, uh, the industry, just the big four this year are planning to hire 8,000 pilots. The traditional number of pilots get produced are six to 7,000. Um, and that's, not, that's before you add everyone else uh, into that mix. You got pilots, you know, we've seen in spades the last few weeks the operational challenges, whether it's the FAA or storms, what it can do uh, to airlines over the holidays, what it did with the NOTAM issue last week. Today there's a storm in Denver, and there's a couple of the airlines there that, you know, canceled 10 percent, you know, one of right. them canceled 10 percent of their flights. Like, it is, there are structural, structural challenges that the system is really at peak capacity. The FAA issue, I want to ask you about it from this standpoint. Yeah. Everybody agrees that there needs to be better investment and in the application yeah. of these funds. But it seems like we're in this, this method of, or this mode of, we talk about this every so often, and yet we're back in the same position where something goes wrong, where it should have been better funded. Are you optimistic it changes this time well, around? Well, I'm hopeful that it will change. And look, the truth is, the FAA's budget is lower today in real terms than it was two decades ago. There are fewer air traffic controllers today than there were 30 years ago. And the FAA's been asked to do space, drones, massive resources for cert certification programs for aircraft. And because of that, they've had to rob Peter to pay Paul. They, is just, Florida they, a good example of that? I, everywhere is. I mean, it's not just Florida. I mean, Florida gets in the news a lot, but everywhere is. And, and look, they did some amazing things over the holidays. I mean, I can tell you some stories of things that people in the FAA did for the Newark Tower, the Denver Tower, uh, where water main breaks and you know, evacuated other facilities. But they just don't have enough resources. Um, I mean, it's just really simple. It's really straightforward. And we've got to get it if we're going to continue to have a world-class aviation How much time will you spend in D.C. or with legislators in Washington saying we need to do better? Well, I've been on the, on the track saying this for the last year. <laughs> right. So, uh, and I spend a lot of time in D.C. I'm probably there twice a month. 
And uh, I'm telling everyone this. And, and look, this isn't a partisan issue. This isn't a Democrat. This isn't right. a Republican. It's a funding. This is infrastructure. This is infrastructure for the country. And it's one of the biggest paybacks we could have. Because if we do this, like reducing delays, cancellations, all the downline implications that that has for the economy, this is one of the easiest paybacks out there. Scott, I believe Melissa has a question for you. Melissa, go ahead. Yes, yeah, Scott, um, there are a few CEOs who will raise guidance to the magnitude that you have tonight without being very, very confident in the outlook. So I, I'm wondering how investors should look at that 50 cents to a dollar. Um, what are the key drivers there? Is it things that have improved, like Europe looks a little better than we thought it might be a couple months ago, the dollar um, backing off, uh, your increased confidence that the recession here in the U.S. will, in fact, be mild? How, how can we think about this? Well, it's really, mostly it's a strong demand environment. Uh, and we look at, out at it and, you know, we have really good insight, uh, particularly for this quarter, what's going to happen. We have reasonably good insight, actually, for the second quarter and beyond. Um, and what we can see, you know, is, is really strong demand patterns, especially in the second half of the month. The, the first half of the, the, the quarter is, is not quite as strong. That's mostly because, you know, this new travel patterns that come from hybrid work, um, you know, are less strong, you know, between, around Thanksgiving and Christmas where people do their traveling on the, on the big holidays. Um, but we, we're just looking at the data for, for what the revenue environment is, and, it, and it's just really strong. So 50, uh, which is the bottom Scott, end yeah. of your, of your new ahead, guidance, Melissa. that's that's basically the mild recession. So that's your worst case scenario. Um, I don't mean to, to hammer this home, but I mean, if things turn a little worse, is there a scenario where 25 becomes your old guidance becomes the guidance? Or is that just in your mind, just really out of the question? I'm just wondering how confident you are in terms of your forecasting and also how, how confident you are that demand will actually hold up, even if unemployment reaches closer to 5 percent. Well, this is our base case scenario. Um, okay. And by the way, I never say worst case scenario. I've always said to people, there's always something worse that can happen. COVID proved that. You should never sure. say worst case scenario because there's always something that can be worse. But you know, we have a lot of confidence in this forecast. Could something happen? Yeah, we've seen it in aviation. You could have an exogenous shock um, that causes something to happen. So it's not 100%. Uh, but it's our base case. And we have a lot of room uh, on that. And particularly with the economy, what typically happens if, if the revenue environment got worse because of a, recession, a deeper recession, for example, usually we'll make up a lot of that on the fuel side. Um, so fuel prices go down along with a weakening economy. So there's a natural hedge for us uh, between the revenue and the fuel environment. Let me ask you about China um, from this perspective. Now that they are uh, opening up, if you will, there are a lot of people who are wondering how quickly demand, especially from the U.S. over to yeah. China, which so much of that was corporate driven, not entirely, but a yeah. lot of it was. How quickly do you expect that to come back? You know, we don't know. It's a TBD to see what's going to happen. Um, there's still rules about, you know, going back and forth. Uh, I think for now we see strength in demand for what we call VFR, visiting family and relatives. Um, but the corporate is holding off a little for right now. And our guess is that's probably too for at least the next 90 days or so. Let people let things shake out, see what the, the status quo, what the standard um, is going to be. And then there's going to be the additional question about adding flights and particularly Russian overflight. Uh, most of the flights to China need to fly over Russia to get there. And because of the Ukraine war, can't fly over Russia. So my guess is the number of flights, um, even when demand does start to come back, it's mostly going to be a West Coast to China set of flights uh, because you can't get there. On otherwise. the other side, transatlantic, you guys are expanding aggressively yeah. as we head towards the summer. 
all systems go in terms of what you're seeing with demand? Yeah, you know, this is work, this is turning out just like we thought it would. You know, two and a half years ago, we decided to keep all of our airplanes. We negotiated a deal with our pilot union, only airline in the world, to keep everyone in position and in their seats for the recovery. And because of that, we're going to grow across the Atlantic 36% um, this summer. We think it's going to be great. And gangbusters, the total industry is essentially going to be flat um, because other airlines cut back on their aircraft and downgraded pilots, and that takes years to reverse those decisions. So it's again, it's an environment where there's a really strong demand dynamic and a big constraint on supply. Last question, pilot contract. How optimistic are you that first half of the year or maybe by third quarter things get locked in? Yeah, I'm very optimistic. Uh, in fact, you know, our pilots union has had some leadership turnover and they've been doing recall elections and they expect to actually have their union leader elected later this month. Um, and they've told us they'll be back at the table with us starting uh, about February 7th. Because of that, and because of the Delta deal, I think we all kind of know we're pretty much in, in the same ballpark. So it ought to be done pretty quickly once we're back at the table. But they've had to wait until they got their leadership structure in place to, to get back to the table. Scott Kirby, CEO of United Airlines on a day, guys, where they beat on the top and the bottom line. But it's the guidance. That's what people are going to be talking about, particularly not just the first quarter, Melissa, but when you look at the full year, 10 to $12. And as I mentioned, going into today, they were at 654 The street was at 654 So well above what Wall Street analysts were expecting. Send it back to you. All right. Thank you so much, Phil. Thanks, Scott, to you as well. Uh, Tim, we got to go to you. I mean, this the A in the lags trade. Uh, yeah, no, but so, so first of all, this whole thing about Wall Street didn't recognize it. I mean, United's up 40 percent in in you know, nine trading sessions. So so because they didn't, I think a lot of this guide was understood. We've heard it from every other airline. So United's doing a great job. Scott Kirby's doing a great job. And if you listen to the thing that he said, that is, again, the, the airlines have a history of not being efficient, especially when times get good. Um, that's the worst thing that happens to them. So when I hear someone say, and I'm not implying this is what United's going to do, um, these were constraints outside of our control that have led us to cut capacity. When they have the ability to control, what are they going to do? Right now, this is an optimal pricing environment. Airlines should go a lot higher. Um, they're trading at significant discounts to where they were pre-COVID. So if you look at a chart in United specifically, since Scott was on, into 2020, that was lower left, upper right. We obviously know what happened. This, by the way, was, a, I think, a $95 stock in the fall of 2019. Just putting it out there, number one. I mentioned 2019 because the comps now are against that. Prasm. Passenger, Passenger revenue, revenue for available seat miles. Let's do this. Oh, man. It's up 24.6%, not versus last year, versus 2019. Average fuel price is down 12.5% from 19. So you start to do the math and say, wait a second, this stock can still go higher from here. Now, I don't know if it gets back to 95 tomorrow, but $60 if you go back and look. That's where we broke down from in March of last year, and that's where the stock should trade up to. I tried to come up with an acronym that, that could include E for Expedia, because all these things that you guys talk about and you guys have been on this airline trade, I really think Expedia is just way too cheap. If you right. think that demand for in and around this space is coming what back. What was your acronym again? TSLQ. TSLQ. Oh, you really made it tough. Yeah. You squeeze right, but, but, but here's the thing. So, so but, vowel, but here's but the thing. Er, earnings are supposed to rebound. They're supposed to be up 30% year over year on 9% sales growth. This is a high gross margin business here, trading 11 and a half times next year. I mean, to me, this seems really cheap. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. New year, new rally. Bitcoin's about face as the token pushes past 21K. 
and the move as Karen making some moves in the crypto space as well. Plus, what's eating Goldman Sachs? The investment bank posting its biggest earnings miss in more than a decade. The traders weigh in on the financial falling. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Crypto's recent rally giving a boost to the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust this year. The GBTC now trading at a discount of just 36% to its net asset value. The discount got to nearly 50% at the end of last year. Um, what should we make of this move, Karen? Well, it's not surprising that it would move with Bitcoin, sure. right? I mean, its original sort of glory days was here's an easier way to buy Bitcoin. And it actually at some point traded at a pretty decent premium. Mm -hmm. That was, it seems like a long time ago, yeah. another world away. But um, also there is, I think it's sort of a long shot, the possibility that somehow this is restructured and sort of that this, this structure that keeps it at such a discount will be dismantled and then you'll just have the underlying Bitcoin. That, sh that sh would move things dramatically. I don't know if it's with, you know, digital, if DCG, something has to happen there mm -hmm. to make this unwind in GPTC, I'm not sure. But as Bitcoin moves up, I would expect this to move up and for the spread to narrow. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, the move that it's had over the last couple of months, it like literally flatlined at 16, 17,000. And all of a sudden, and Guy had kind of been articulating this pretty clearly for a while is like, you're going to get a move in Bitcoin when people start being convinced that the Fed's going to pivot. It was interesting that gold moved first. Like gold's had this rally. You've been pounding the table on it for the last couple of months. And then all at once, Bitcoin goes up in a straight line from 17,000 to where it is, you know, at 21,000. And I do think that's kind of interesting. I think it's more emblematic of the, some of the other things we were talking about is this move back into the risk stuff that didn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. You know what I mean? Got destroyed on the way down in 2022. So to me, I don't really think it's, it's that bullish for equities to see meme stocks, crypto, and, yeah. uh, you know, this other crap moving higher. So. One, one other thing, though, I do think Silvergate, which isn't a huge thing. We talk about it sometimes, the sort of bank to the crypto world. Um, they had a disastrous quarter in terms of deposits leaving, but they were fully able to meet those deposit request. So I think that was important. That was a trade that for earnings today, I had sort of a capital structure arbitrage. I took it off because it wasn't that big of a difference from what the street expected, but still good for crypto. Coming up, the big bet on BABA, how the so-called meme stock king is getting in on China tech. Activist Ryan Cohen's latest moves. More on that ahead. And some major bank blues for Goldman has a one-time pinnacle of Wall Street lost its way. The financial follow-up is next. Fast Money's back right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on the markets today. Stocks closing out mixed as earnings start to roll in. The Dow dropping nearly 400 points. The S&P falling two-tenths of a percent. It is down. It's first down day in five sessions. But the tech-heavy Nasdaq getting a boost, now riding a seven-day winning streak into tomorrow. Some standout action. Energy, one of the top-performing sectors in today's session. The OIH Oil Services ETF hitting its highest level since May of 2019. And take a look at the after-hours moves in Moderna, jumping after saying its RSV vaccine is nearly 84% effective in older adults. All right, here's a question. What's wrong with Goldman Sachs? What is wrong with it? The once gold standard posting its biggest earnings miss in 11 years, thanks in part to weakness in consumer banking. The bank setting aside nearly a billion dollars for credit losses after reporting an increase in charge-offs. Operating expenses also ballooning up 11%. Shares tumbling more than 6%. Meantime, Morgan Stanley shares surging almost 6% after beating top and bottom line estimates, a drop in deal-making, shaking profits for the quarter, but its wealth management business lending support. So what is Goldman doing wrong? We didn't even mention the whole foray into consumer banking, which they're now pulling back on, Guy. I think that's part of it. But this is, I mean, in the old days, this was a pre-announcement quarter waiting to happen. I don't know why people don't do that. Seemingly nobody does it anymore. But it's not a good quarter on the EPS side. And quite frankly, you dig a little bit. It's not that great. So here's what I look at quickly if you want to try to figure out where it's going. Book value this quarter was a lot lower than last quarter. It's around 304-ish. Goldman Sachs has traded at book value a number of times last year, and it feels like it's headed there now, which just was a miserable quarter, especially in light of what Morgan Stanley did, which was, I won't use remarkable, but almost a remarkable quarter. So uh, I am long Morgan Stanley. I'm not long Goldman Sachs. On a day like today, it feels great. But in general, I think that it is, it's starting to get interesting. But Morgan Stanley has really changed their business. Yeah. There's an overlap here in the investment banking part and the capital markets part. But then the rest, I mean, Morgan Stanley, the rest of their business is wealth management. They've done a great job. Recurring They've done revenues. acquisitions. Right. Recurring revenues. And so even though the same earnings stream over 10 years, they could have because Goldman has some big wins and some big losses. It's going to be way more highly valued at Morgan Stanley than Goldman Sachs. Yeah. So yeah, Goldman's issues, I think, were really around the cyclicality of what's going on out there in the world and their reliance on some of the, the, the higher, you know, I would just say margin businesses. But it was an expense story and it was really an expense yeah. story. And, and I think that's what got people off sides. I think people knew this wasn't going to be a great quarter for some of the other, uh, again, high margin businesses, trading businesses. And also the, the return on tangible equity, I think, four point eight percent last year a year ago at this time it was over 12 percent so um this is just again a firm that's always put their capital to work as efficiently as anybody in the street I, first of all i wouldn't be counting goldman out and i look at the ratio between goldman and morgan stanley and i'd say it's almost time to go the other way i mean morgan stanley's outperformed goldman by um something like 80 percent in the last five years uh and i think it's it's a case where you know some of this stuff has already been well priced in but in the last Two years, they've had this oscillating back and forth. Morgan Stanley overbought to Goldman Sachs. Yeah, and I agree with that. If you see Goldman back at book, where Guy just said has traded in a couple of times over the last year or so, that'd be about $300. That's more than 10% lower than here. You think about what the base case scenario is if we just have a soft landing and a mild like, you know, recession. This company, like coming back leaner in, in front of what is going to be a gangbusters capital markets environment because the backlog is so massive after last year, that's how you want to buy a stock like Goldman Sachs. And I also think in this environment where we see a lot of activists pushing things around or whatever, you know, if this company continues to underperform some of its investment bank peers, you might see some smart investors get involved pushing for stuff, maybe less consumer oriented and more in the stuff that is very much in their DNA. 
Coming up, the so-called meme stock king, Ryan Cohen, is setting his sights on China Tech, the name he's making moves on, and what his buy means for retail investors next. Plus, we've got one more acronym for the new year. Mike Coe will lay out his guilty pleasure stocks ahead. Don't go anywhere. We're back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Activist investor Ryan Cohen has a new target in his sights. The Chewy founder and GameStop chairman reportedly taking a big stake in Alibaba, looking for the Chinese e-commerce giant to amp up its share buyback program. Shares of Alibaba have nearly doubled since hitting a 52-week low this past October, but are still down more than 60% from their all-time high. For more on Cohen's deal, let's bring in Spencer Jacob. He's the editor of the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column. Spencer, great to have you with us. Um, He's also, by the way, the author of the book, The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the fleecing of small investors. So the perfect person to talk to about this. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, he, he could have already made a bundle on this. But, I mean, who, who does he think he is if he's approaching this as an activist investor, basically taking on Beijing when the company has already said, you know what, you know, we, we're with you, Beijing, in terms of the common prosperity message. Uh, why does he think that he could restore or help restore profitability and revenues to, to pre-pandemic levels? Yeah, I mean, I think today's action says it all, Melissa. Look, the, the stock was down one and a half percent today after the news came out in the journal. Nasdaq was up slightly. Shanghai Composite was flat. So the stock underperformed. And, and that's because the Chinese don't care about apes. I mean, it would look at the, the relative size of this company, too. I mean, it's, um, you know, GameStop was at the time that he announced his stake in September of 2020, 700 times or one seven hundredth uh, as valuable as uh, as Alibaba is today. Bed Bath & Beyond, when he showed up in that stock last year in the spring, was about half a percent as big as Alibaba's. So it's a much bigger company, and he, he can't influence them, and he doesn't have the same voting rights, and there's not the same short interest. So they're, they're unimpressed. And while it might be a good investment, and he might be up, you know, if you bought it last summer, he's probably up 10 to 15 percent. Alibaba's up 30 percent year to date. And it might be a good long-term holding. I don't think that he can really influence the company. What is his standing in the Reddit community? I mean, at one time, he was probably meme lord. Um, and after exiting abruptly the, the Bed Bath & Beyond position, I don't, I don't know what you would call it, the opposite of lord. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, he was hated, basically, by a lot of Reddit folks. Where does he stand right now? I mean, when you read the headline, did you think, oh, that means that this many people could follow him in, potentially? Not necessarily moving the needle on the stock, but you could have some sort of retail flow into the name. When I saw it, I didn't think that we'd see a lot of retail flow. I did mm-hmm. expect the stock to be surprised, and we didn't even get that. And so, you know, what's his standing? I mean, the thing is that the, these apes are a very forgiving bunch because they're sort of they're the sad sacks of, of the stock market. They wind up getting dumped on a lot. And, you know, whether it's Ryan Cohen or Elon Musk or whoever, they, they tend to forgive people who they once revered. I mean, he, he really treated them badly the way you look at Bed Bath & Beyond shook out because he kind of ramped it up with his disclosures over the summer. And then all of a sudden it was reported that he was out. So he, he made a very tidy profit for himself at the expense of a lot of, of naive people. Uh, that doesn't mean that he's not influential because people still watch what he does. Uh, but this is just too big of a fish to fry for him, I think, in terms of size and just in terms of having any influence over the Chinese. It, you know, apes don't matter. I think you need like King Kong to move Alibaba, not apes. It's <laughs> the line of the day. Spencer, always great to speak with you. Thank you. Spencer Thanks. Jacob of the Wall Street Journal. Um, <clears throat> apes are also very forgiving of 
being taken in the stock market and going back in. I mean, we're seeing it right now with, and I'm sure that there, we're going to have plenty of hate tweets yeah. about this. We're seeing it now, though, with the resurgence of these stocks that had been once great trading vehicles, probably wronged many people, and now we're back. Yeah, look, I, I, I understand that there are people that are aggrieved and they have reasons to be aggrieved. And sometimes there are there are firms that are selling short stocks. They don't have taken the bar. But, you know, the stories that got the most attention were broken companies, companies that were absolutely busted. And you had a couple of guys come in and really run roughshod on what they were able to do with liquidity and move prices around. I love the title of Spencer Jacobs book. I mean, yeah. that is fantastic. And I think the title I'll let that title speak for itself. And, and you know, I think a lot of retail people um, are very smart investors that should not and we're not chasing this guy. Coming up, one more acronym for 2023. Professor Co is laying out his picks for the new year. The traits he says are going to be golden this year. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got one more big acronym reveal coming your way. Last but not least, of course, Mike Co joins us now to unveil his lustrous pick. Mike, what is it? It is GILT, G-I-L-T. So uh, G is for, as you might guess, and as the acronym would also suggest, is for gold. This is something I've liked for uh, a couple of months now. It's had quite a run, I have to say. Uh, But I think if we're taking a look at uh, short-term market-based interest rates rather than the Fed funds rate, we know that rates and gold are probably anti-correlated. I think there is still some potential room to the upside here. So um, especially as as rates may potentially a level offer come in. I is for IBB. That is the biotech ETF. Uh, I think generally in times of uh, economic distress, I still think we are in a little bit of it. Healthcare is a place to be, but there is obviously an element of innovation in there. L is for ticker LAND, L-A-N-D. That's Gladstone Land Corp. Uh, This is a small cap name, owns uh, farmland and leases it on a triple net basis. And they focus on non-commodity agriculture. So we're talking more about produce. That's going to be nuts, berries, lettuce, that kind of thing, rather than uh, less perishable commodities like wheat, corn, and so on. And then T is for AT&T. This is a stock I've held for some time. People need to think about this one basically on a total return basis, dividend yield just under 6% right now. I think that dividend is at this point well covered. All right, Mike, thank you. Could have added a U and it could have changed the whole thing, but G-I-L-T is Mike's acronym. Um, We wanna hear from you out there, by the way. What was your favorite 2023 acronym from our traders? Was it COM? Flambe, Mojo, Wags, (laughs) TSLQ. They're all on our homepage for you to choose. So head on over to CNBC.com slash Fast Money or scan the QR code on your screen right now to vote. And can't just settle on one. You can pick up to three favorites. I'll pick one. Come on. Well, the T and Mike's guilt trade seeing some big action in the options market today. Mike, what'd you see? Yeah, calls out pacing puts by about two to one. The biggest trade we saw was a purchase of 4,800 of the March 20 calls. Buyer paid 52 cents, making a bullish bet over the course of the next two months. All right, we'll see you Friday for the full show, uh, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, Final Trades. Final Trade time, Tim. If airlines are doing this well, Boeing's doing this well, order books are building back up, Boeing, you got you to gotta go there. Chairwoman. Yes, I think this Goldman Morgan thing went too far on each side. I'd be selling some upside Morgan Stanley calls. 
Stan Nathan. Yeah, I like the Julian's call to be defensive in healthcare. Pfizer looks like a good level here. Guy. Tried to get into a McDonald's over the week, couldn't do it. Why? Why? Too, too long the line. Too small. It's, it's Use the kiosk. Use the kiosk, man. You McDonald's, all time high. Portion. You kept trying to pull or what happened? Order online, bro. Order online. <laughs> Watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.